One Week Season. going on OWS fam. Welcome to the week three edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. Throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed and let's get started with a week that couldn't be more different from week two if it were trying. So week two, we came out of week two, really nice week for the OWS fam. But there are different types of really good weeks for the OWS fam. In fact, I believe it was week two of the 2022 season when a large number of OWS users were sitting at the tops of the leaderboards across all contests, across all sites. And the reason that week was because the Miami Dolphins and Baltimore Ravens played to what I believe was a 42 to 38 shootout. And it was a game that we hadn't really highlighted on the site beyond pointing out that shootouts develop from explosive players hitting for big plays and that that was a game that had explosive players in it. It was not a game that was expected to be particularly high scoring. It was a game that was very low owned. But because of all the training that we do at OWS around what first place rosters look like and what we should be looking for in order to get to the tops of the leaderboards, there were quite a few OWS members who had isolated that game and said, well, if these explosive players start hitting for big plays, this game could go nuts. So at low ownership with that game significantly outscoring all the other games on the slate, the small number of rosters that bet on that game blowing up were already in position to finish near the tops of tournaments and basically allowed OWS to take down, I forget what it was, but it was like 10 to 12 different tournaments that OWS members had taken first place in. And then there are weeks like week two, where Joshua Kelly is grabbing 20% ownership and he was in in the player grid for me, but obviously with a a pretty down note for me and I ended up with 0% exposure to him. And I think most OWS members were pretty much avoiding him. And there were some other spots like that where ownership was just higher on certain players than it should have been. And then there were other spots on last week's slate. I'll, I'll say it like this. There were a lot of spots on last week's slate with upside available. And because of our NFL knowledge, we were able to sift through those available upside spots and understand which ones had the highest upside among those upside spots. On top of that, it was early enough in the season, and we always have these every year. We have, whether it's Josh Allen in 2018 or whether it's Deontay Johnson when he was 4,200 or there's like three or four guys last year that we were on them much earlier than the field. So there was also Tank Dell that, you know, I had him on, I don't know, 30 or 40% of my rosters last week. We were high on him on the site. We talked about him a lot throughout the week, but the field wasn't on him at all. Same thing with Zach Moss. I had Zach Moss and I believe it was 30% of my rosters last week and the field just wasn't on him at all. And so last week was a week that lined up where our NFL knowledge, it really wasn't our understanding of DFS theory and understanding of DFS strategy that helped us to win a lot of money last week. It was obviously an understanding of what winning rosters look like. That still has to be the case where you're putting together rosters that have clear paths to a first place finish and that are shedding as many rosters as possible on your way to the tops of the leaderboards. And uh, as I've mentioned several times already this season, if you have not listened to that playing for first place course, there are there's a part one and part two to the course in the DFS education marketplace. Uh, part one is available to all OWS members, including OWS free members. Part two is available to all Inner Circle members, or it's 39 bucks in the DFS education marketplace. But listening to those courses and understanding what we really mean by playing for first place is, in my mind, critical. And we've actually had several users already this year 
finish at or near the tops of tournaments and talk about that course being something that really helped them understand what they were missing in their own DFS play. Each course is about three hours long of me talking like I'm doing right now. Uh, so play it on 2x speed and that's about, you know, three hours total between the two courses. So uh, anyhow, the roster construction is obviously critical. You can't just know who the good plays are and win on a weekend. You have to put those good plays onto well-built rosters. And, and that's why we have such a heavy focus on OWS, in addition to understanding DFS strategy and theory, such a heavy focus on roster construction. But there are those rare weeks where we can actually just identify a lot better than the field, right? We always say that the edge in DFS is no longer just knowing who the good plays are. And yet, every once in a while, sometimes it's twice in a season, sometimes it doesn't happen at all in one season, but it happens two or three times in the next season. Every once in a while, there are weeks where our edge is just being better than the field at knowing who the best plays are. Now, I do think, and this is just me diagnosing my own play, right? And I'm, I tend to be good at identifying my strengths and my weaknesses. I say that so that if I'm talking about my strengths, uh, you recognize that you, at other times you will also hear me talk about my weaknesses. But uh, one of my strengths is being better than the field at identifying who the good plays are. And obviously we pass that on to OWS users and Hilo's extremely good at that. Mike's extremely good at that. Xanamir's extremely good at that. Uh, but understanding, like knowing the NFL really well, knowing the ins and outs of these teams and these players and being better than the field at identifying who the best plays are. But that's typically not enough of an edge for us to win contests. So I balance that with DFS theory, with DFS strategy, so that if I'm pretty confident that a player is actually one of the best players, then I'm not just going out of my way to say, well, he's going to be popular, so how do I play off of that? Uh, we'll get to this week's game of the week here in a moment and actually have a deeper discussion on that and how we'll apply that to week three in our play. But oftentimes, that's just a small edge. And then the rest of the edge goes to understanding how to really win in DFS. So week two just happened to be one of those fortunate weeks for us where, hey, it lined up to where the players that we were on were just better players than the field in general was on. Now, if you're listening to this and you didn't have a big week two, don't get down, right? Like this, this happens. You, it's not the only opportunity. I, I guess let's rewind back to week one. I talked coming off of week one about had a profitable week, had a nice week, but at the same time, my main build in the game changer was a variation of a roster that would have won me $100,000 in the game changer. I took a roster I really liked, a roster that I put into other single entry and smaller field contests, and I said, yeah, but I'm gonna change it for the game changer. Changed it and made $1,500 instead of $98,500. And what I had to say to myself after that was, this is not the only opportunity I'll have for one of those payouts like that, and I just gotta keep putting in good play, keep banging on the door, it'll happen again. Right? So if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I didn't have a good week two. I picked the wrong guys. I did this wrong. I did this wrong. That's okay. Like Every week, it's about doing your best and getting better. As long as you're doing your best in week three and finding ways to get better heading into week four, you're going to keep having these opportunities. They're going to come your way. This week is so different from last week in that, like, let's take a look at the macro state of the slate. We have this Chargers-Vikings game. Both teams are implied to score 27 points. Now, we also have Kansas City implied to score at this point. They're up over 30 points in their implied team total. We have the Bills pushing close to that 27-point mark. We have the Ravens, the Jags. Like We have all these different teams pushing close to the same implied team totals as the Chargers and the Vikings. But the difference with the setup with the Chargers and the Vikings is, I've said it like this, if Chargers and Vikings ends up being 27 to 24, well, there's no edge in that game compared to Kansas City and Baltimore and Jacksonville, or at least, you know, maybe not all these games hit those 27-ish points, but some of them will. So there's not a major edge. The major edge is if Buffalo's up 27 to 10, 27 to 17 and they get the ball back with six minutes left in the fourth quarter, seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, well, they're just trying to control the clock and run it down and win that game. That's different from, say, Kansas City, right? If Kansas City is up, 
35 to 10, you have a team in Kansas City that likes to throw the ball. They're going to stay aggressive deep into the game. And then they get the ball back with six minutes left. And they're up 25 points. And it's like, well, who cares? They've already put up so many points. But it's these other games where it's going to be competitive. Um, Washington's going to have a tight game with Buffalo. So if Buffalo gets the ball back with that lead, it's not going to be like a blowout lead that they have. It's going to be a tight competitive game more than likely. And probably the same thing even with the Texans and the Jags potentially the same thing with the Ravens and the Colts. They're going to be these tighter, more competitive games. A team gets the ball back and they're saying, okay, like let's close out this game. Now it's the, what is it? The four minute drill where you're, the, the goal is to take as much time off the clock as you can. Whereas Chargers and Vikings, you have that opportunity for it to be 27 to 24 and Vikings are trailing by three and get the ball back with six minutes left and they drive down and score a touchdown to take the lead but they leave two minutes and 12 seconds on the clock for Justin Herbert and he goes down and he scores a touchdown. And now all of a sudden this game is this back and forth late game setup. And how often are you looking at your DraftKings rosters, your FanDuel rosters, where you're at in the standings, how much money you're making when there's three, four, five minutes left in the last games of the day. And then all of a sudden your earnings, your winnings drop dramatically because crazy stuff starts happening back and forth in those games. So if that doesn't happen in this Vikings and Chargers game, if we don't get that back and forth of scoring toward the end, well, then it really doesn't matter. This game doesn't separate from the others. But this is the only game on the slate that really sets up with a high potential for that type of late game aggressive back and forth. And then that potential to go into overtime and get extra goodness from there. On top of that, this game, just fundamentally, given the way that these teams are structured, given the way that these teams approach football games, it's very unlikely that this game just underwhelms, that we end up, uh, I used an example earlier today, reaching back in the memory bank of, I think it was 2021, it was early in the season, might actually also have been a week two game, and it was Chargers and Cowboys. And it was, I believe it was week two, and, and both teams were coming off high-scoring week one games. And the perception around the DFS industry was, I don't see how this game fails. And I remember doing a podcast with Blender HD that week from, from Roto-Grinders, a really sharp DFS theory guy. And, and in fact, Blender HD is one of these guys that we talk about who he makes more money in DFS than the people who know the NFL really well, and he doesn't know the NFL well. His whole thing is just strategy and theory. And he recognizes, he has acknowledged in our conversations that, yeah, sure, if you can also marry deep NFL knowledge with DFS strategy and theory, you have an edge over the DFS strategy and theory people. But most people who have deep NFL knowledge overrate that NFL knowledge and therefore lose to the people who just play with DFS strategy and theory. And he was saying in the podcast we did that week, he was like, yeah, this game could go off, Chargers and Cowboys, it could go off, but I won't have exposure to it. I'm going to go totally different directions. There's no way that I'm playing that game. And sure enough, the final score in that game was, I believe it was 20 to 16. And you guys know this, if you've been around the site, if there's a game with a higher total than all the other games, and everybody is all over that game, I'm typically going to be well underweight that particular game. And part of that is just my natural personality is to poke holes in consensus thinking. So if everybody is seeing one angle, I'm naturally going to say, yeah, but what's the other angle? And then I have to I have to make sure that I'm not then getting married to my alternate angle. And so it would be easy for me on a week like this week to say, okay, I'm not going to be on Vikings and Chargers. And so let me go to other games and hope that that game fails. Let me poke holes in how that game could fail and then just marry that idea and live or die with that decision. But whenever we're able to, we want to be neutral in our thinking, see all the angles, and then kind of return to that center point to understand, okay, how does this slate shape up? And what is the best approach on this particular slate? And using our NFL knowledge, we can recognize that on this week, this is not the type of week where you just say, okay, or it's not likely to be profitable on this week. I'll say it like that. It's not likely to be profitable on this week to just say, oh, everybody's on this Chargers and Vikings game. I'll go a different direction. The Vikings are so good 
at scoring points. Like we can even take away the struggles that the Chargers defense has had early in the season. The Vikings, in fact, going another step, just the Vikings mindset of how they try to win games. It's one of the reasons why I like the Falcons. You see me talk a lot about the Falcons being a really sharp team, even though their run heavy ways makes it easy to make fun of them in fantasy football circles. But even though they're run heavy, they're always hunting for explosives. Uh, which is a term that coaches use, which obviously means explosive plays. I forget which coach it was, but one coach earlier this year pointed out that most games have about 20 explosive plays in them. However, they can, it might've been Arthur Smith, Falcons head coach talking about that, but however explosive plays are categorized, he said most games have about 20 explosive plays in them. And so your goal is to have as many of those 20 plays as possible and prevent your opponent from getting those explosive plays because those are typically what's going to determine the game. So the Falcons are, yes, running the ball a lot, but they're explosive play-minded. They have very creative run game concepts that open opportunities for explosive run plays. And while they don't throw the ball a lot, all of their passing concepts are built being aware of the fact that they don't throw the ball a lot. And so that when they do throw the ball, again, what they're doing is they're hunting for ways to build off of those run concepts and leverage the overcommitment of the defense to the run in order to hunt for explosive plays through the air. So coming over to this Vikings team, everything on this Vikings offense is about explosive plays. Everything on this Vikings offense is about passing the ball, moving the ball downfield quickly, scoring as quickly as possible. Then on the Chargers side, how often do we see, if we could put it as simply as this, how often do we see Justin Herbert get blown out? Yes, the Chargers lose a lot of close games, but Justin Herbert is always going to keep that team in games. And the Vikings don't have a lot of talent on defense. We've talked about this a lot. They do have a tremendous coach in Brian Flores, a coach who knows how to tie up the opponent's feet, so to speak, by making them think that extra click of a second on every single play where the quarterback thinks it's going to be this and then it's this. Or the, the defense is showing this and then they move to something else. And the quarterback's always going to be a little bit off balance when they're playing this Vikings defense, even though they don't have a ton of talent. The uh, Last week, we saw DeAndre Swift uh, absolutely rip this defense apart on the ground. But the week before that, the Buccaneers came out of their game against the Vikings talking about what a great run defense the Vikings have. So obviously, it's not a talent thing. It's a thing of Brian Flores. However, he's crafting that week's game plan to where when he's playing the Bucs, it's like, hey, we're going to do all this stuff to make the run game difficult. When he's playing against the Eagles, for whatever reason, he's thinking more about the pass and then unable to kind of counter the unique challenges that DeAndre Swift brings to the table. DeAndre Swift is able to have a big game against him. So all that to say, the Chargers should be able to find, okay, the Vikings are trying to take this away, but they're not talented enough to truly stop us. And eventually, even if they start a little bit slowly, even if this game as a whole starts a little bit slowly, there should be that opportunity for the Chargers to put up points in response to what the Vikings are doing. Now, again, it won't be surprising if this is a 24 to 27 game or a 20 to 24 game. It won't be surprising if both teams are moving the ball, but neither team is able to score touchdowns, right? Because that touchdown element is unpredictable. But we do know that both teams will be throwing the ball. We know that both teams will be attacking at both the intermediate and deep levels of the field. So if there's a lot of stops, it's not going to be this team held on to the ball for seven minutes, 10 plays, 12 plays, and then kicked a field goal. And then the other team had a six or seven minute drive and kicked a field goal. And all of a sudden, a quarter of the game is gone and it's three to three. Now, a quarter of the game could go and it could be three to three, but each team's going to have more possessions than that because they're both going to be trying to hit these bigger plays. And as the game goes on, each team will get more aggressive on trying to hit these bigger plays. So even if the quarterbacks don't hit, these skill position players will have an opportunity to hit. So the way I'm looking at this week is this game, there are very clear opportunities for it not to be a had-to-have-it game, but there are very few opportunities for all the pieces from this game to disappoint. Furthermore, we have a lot of low total games. We have potential weather concerns now in the northeast corner of the country. So that would be Patriots and Jets and Baltimore and Colts and Buffalo and Washington. And then we have the blowout games where 
or not necessarily blowouts, but where one team is a heavy favorite over another is a much better team than the other. And the chances of the lesser team keeping up with the better team in a high-scoring affair are really low. The Jags have an excellent defense and are expected to handle this game against the Texans. The Chiefs have an excellent defense and are expected to handle this Bears offense that has looked really dysfunctional so far. The Ravens have a really good offense, an excellent defense, and are expected to handle this Colts team. So if these games stay close, it's likelier to be because of something that happens on the offensive side for these heavy favorites, where it's close in a lower scoring, you know, they're not getting up to 30 points, than it is because both teams are getting up to 30 points. So put it all together, and this Vikings-Chargers game is a game that's likely to produce scores that end up on tournament-winning rosters. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to produce had-to-have-it scores, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be had to, it's going to be a had-to-have-it game environment. But that's also within the range of outcomes. So the range of outcomes to me, and again, there are outlier scenarios, but the range of outcomes to me and the way I'm going to be handling this game this week is anywhere from this game produces solid players to this game becomes a had-to-have-it game environment. So I'm not going to force a rule on my rosters this week where every roster must have at least one Vikings piece and one Chargers piece, where every roster must have at least one player from this game. But just based on the player exposures I'm going to have in my pool, I will have exposure to this game on a good 80 to 90% of my rosters. And a lot of those will be one or two pieces from this game. Then I will also have rosters that bet on this being the game that you had to have in order to win this week. A game that isn't just both teams putting up points, but that becomes one of these back and forth, one of these Lions Seahawks last week type games where toward the end of the game, it starts going back and forth. The scoring starts piling up and you're able to pick up a bunch of points down the stretch run that really separates you from the field. So I will have anywhere from one to two players from this game to overstacks of this game, four or five players from this game on my rosters this week with very few players. I'm not going to force any rosters with no players from this game or go out of my way to have rosters with no players from this game. I will naturally have a few of those rosters just because there's enough else that I want to do on this slate and the pricing is restrictive enough on these players that I'm not going out of my way to make sure I have 100% exposure. But for the most part, that's what I'll be doing with this game this week. Now, again... Every week is unique. Every week is different. And this week's puzzle was very difficult for me to get a handle on. I came off of week two, feeling great, finished second place in the slant, had a couple other rosters finishing up there in the top 25, had several other rosters in the top 50, several others in the top 100 out of 26,000 entries, had a nice profitable weekend, feeling good about that and feeling on top of the world too because it felt so easy. It was like, well, I just knew that these were better plays than, than what the field was on this week. And then I started getting into this week's slate and I was like, man, I hate this slate. Like it just, and I, and I said to my wife on Wednesday, I think it was, I said, this, it's just not a slate that lines up well with my strengths as a player, with, with what my biggest edges are, which again, my biggest edges are marrying my NFL knowledge with DFS theory and strategy. And this is a week where NFL knowledge, deeper NFL knowledge doesn't hold as much weight. And I'm coming off a week where deeper NFL knowledge held a lot of weight and was, again, the primary reason we were able to have a profitable week. And saying it like that, we were able to have a profitable week. It's almost as if if you're, um, if you've been in decentralized finance at all, you understand what a DAO is. It's almost like I sometimes see OWS as a DAO where it's like how much was the collective entry fees for all OWS users this week and what was our return? Was it a profitable week for the OWS fam as a whole or an unprofitable week for the OWS fam as a whole? And week in and week out, our goal is like if we all just pooled our money together and it's like, hey, here's the entries from everybody and the entry fees from everybody and were we profitable or not? The goal is for every week for us to be profitable. So how we were profitable last week as an OWS fam is going to be very different from how we go about being profitable this week. So continuing to look at this slate and having a hard time really, it was 
you know, I was poking around on practice builds and just not feeling inspired in terms of nothing was clicking where I was like, oh, here's one of the little angles I was looking for. Here's one of the little edges that I've been hunting for. And last night I was still really feeling like, man, I'm just not quite there on this slate. And typically Thursday nights, I kind of pin down my final thoughts for the player grid, for the player pool, and prepare everything. You know, I type up the player grid on Friday afternoon, but I also have uh, the DFS lab in the morning, and then my show with Overzet after that, and then my show with Squirrel Patrol on Roto-Grinders after that, and then record the Angles podcast after that. So there's, there's like two, two and a half hours to type up the player grid. And so before I start doing that, I want to have everything pinned down. So I was entering Thursday night this week, and really still just didn't have my my pool figured out. And I had not the not the smartest thing. I don't get out much during football season, especially not during the early portions of the season when you know the first five, six weeks are still so much business stuff that clogs up the week and on, on top of all the DFS content, DFS play. Uh, but I was scheduled to go hang out with, he's not my brother, but he's like my brother. It's a guy I grew up with uh, and scheduled to go hang out with him at his house for just grab like an hour and a half with him, hang out by the fire pit in his backyard. And I went and did that last night, and my plan was to record my go through all the games on the drive there and back about twenty five minute drive and and record my thoughts on each game and try to just pin down the player pool and on the drive there, it was like, you know what? I just need some space like I'm just gonna not focus on this at all and give my like my subconscious some time to work on this problem in the background. So went there, hung out with my brother for a couple hours. Driving home at, at 10.45 or 10.50, whatever it was, getting home shortly before 11.30. And on that drive home, I started working through my running back player pool. And I realized, oh, wow, there's, you know, I was kind of low on Tony Pollard in DFS interpretations, but hadn't been able to get a handle on running backs as a whole. And I started realizing working through my running back pool, oh, that's because I don't love anything at running back. And Tony Pollard isn't a great play for his price, but he's head and shoulders above the other plays at the position. And then there's kind of like the Travis Etienne, Bijan Robinson, and they're head and shoulders above the next tier of guys. And then there's like Jameer Gibbs. And then there's all these guys at 6K and below who probably get 16 to 20 touches, don't catch many passes. And because I spent so many years being a single entry player, and a single entry or limited entry player. Because I spent so many years doing that, my mindset is still like, okay, I have to figure out of all these guys sub 6K, I have to figure out who's the best play. And this week on paper, there really is no best play. There isn't a lot that separates this guy from that guy from that guy. Raheem Mostert from Alexander Madison, from Joshua Kelly, from whoever else is in that pool of guys that you'll see in the player grid. And I started realizing, okay, this is just the way that this week sets up. You can't force the week to be a particular way. This week sets up where, yeah, typically Tony Pollard's not a guy I'd be going out of my way to play at 8K and a probable blowout victory, but he is actually head and shoulders above what's available on this slate, or at least head above what's available on this slate with uh, with Bijan Robinson and below him for me, Travis Etienne being the shoulders, and then below those guys, kind of everybody else. And so that helped. And then during the end of the drive, I kind of got my my defense pool pinned down. And then I got home and from 11.30 to 12.30 or 1, I worked through quarterbacks and wide receivers and tight ends. And what I realized was I have a very small quarterback pool. But as I was hunting around and doing practice builds, I kept looking for ways to ex- expand that quarterback pool. Because here's the thing, two, I have five quarterbacks in my tighter pool. Two of them are Justin Herbert and Kirk Cousins, and I don't love either of them. If Justin Herbert throws for 350 yards and four touchdowns, that's only 33 DraftKings points. That's barely more than what you need at his salary. And again, at some point, salary goes out of the window, but that, that point is 30 pointers, right? We, 30 pointers are always valuable on our rosters. And the more 30 pointers we can get, the more paths we have to a first place finish. And it's like, boy, he needs a lot. This, this guy who's really, since the rib injury last year, has been a pretty strict pocket passer. You go back a couple of years, he could pick you up three, four points in a game. You know, anyway, like Trevor Lawrence, right? You're not banking on four points from him on the ground, but 
Every once in a while you get it. Sometimes you get three, sometimes you get two, but add some points on the ground. And now Herbert's more like, like the same thing with the, uh, the DAC evolution. You used to be able to get those few extra points on the ground from DAC. And now it's like, sometimes you get them, but usually you don't. So if we think of Herbert as a pocket passer, he needs a lot to go right just to get you the score that you really want from him, just to get you one of those 30 pointers. Because if he puts up 25 and some 5K quarterback puts up 20, 21, 22, why are you paying that extra 25, 2600 in salary, right? So those guys are on my two of the five quarterbacks in my pool and they're pocket passers that don't really separate. And that was why... Another reason why I kept kind of being like, I don't, I don't get this slate. I don't, don't have a handle on this slate. And so recognizing, okay, well, that's just because my, my pool is small. Uh, you know, I like large field play. I'll, I'll mention this just because I'm still playing around with this, and it wouldn't surprise me if he slipped onto a tighter build. Deshaun Watson, um, you know, he's looked awful. And he has an eight-game sample size now with the Browns where he's looked pretty bad. But in my show with Squirrel Patrol today, we were, shout out to Squirrel Patrol, by the way, one of the sharpest DFS players, uh, picked up a million-dollar win this last week on the, I think it was the Monday to Thursday slate, so or the uh, Sunday to Monday, Sunday night to Monday night slate. Um, so Squirrel Patrol, new, new millionaire, if he wasn't one already um, from DFS. So, uh, but he and I were talking about the, the quarterback position and, and kind of working through like who else could pop for a big game. And he was talking about Desmond Ritter. And I was saying the problem with, with Ritter, like he can go for 22. And if he goes for 22, 23, and these expensive guys go for 25, like that's really nice, but he can also go for 11 given the way they run their offense. And obviously, you know, that happens. You get the downside, you're not winning anyway, but we still want to be hunting for those guys who their chances of the big game are that much bigger. And, I mentioned Deshaun Watson and was saying how the example I've used so far this week was, you know, last year I kept waiting for Tom Brady and Mike Evans to look like Tom Brady and Mike Evans. I kept playing them. Some of you probably kept playing them as well because I kept being like, you know what, I'm going to take some shots on this one. And it just didn't happen. And recognizing, man, sometimes it just doesn't happen. Like Deshaun Watson might be broken. He might not have big games in him this year. And then as we were having that discussion, we started realizing well, he has played the Bengals in really bad weather and then the Steelers. Like, those are not great matchups to start the season. And now he's playing this Titans pass defense that we've picked on again. Now we're up to 7-0, and I believe it is, betting uh, the overs in Props Insider on, on pass attempts against Tennessee because you can't run against them. And they force so many pass attempts. And even though they don't give up a ton of points, just that volume leads to good quarterback scores, those 300-yard games. Leads to a lot of targets for pass catchers. Leads to a lot of yards for pass catchers. So uh, I say all that as a side trail to say, honestly, maybe Deshaun Watson does end up on one of my tighter builds this week. But recognizing okay, the quarterback pool is just pretty thin this week. There's not a lot that I love besides getting into these things like Desmond Ritter, where you're like, oh, you know what? He could actually put up 22 to 25 points. And it's like, but he probably won't. So recognizing that and recognizing the shape of the running back setup really helped me a lot because it helped me recognize, okay, like all these running backs that I am in the habit of trying to sort through, I don't have to sort through them. I can basically say, all right, uh, well, actually, so let me side trail here. And I think this is pretty important. And that is, why have I been 70% profitable weekends in single entry and three max play since I started using an optimizer? I've been trying to figure that out since the middle of last year when I started using an optimizer. And I hit on this in the angles email, so I'll just hit it really quickly. But what it is, is... It's way easier to, to identify really sharp rosters than it is to build really sharp rosters, to get out of your way in your own head and build really sharp rosters. And because I'm playing MME and I run these 150 rosters, well, I then shop through those 150 rosters to find my favorites to put into single entry and three max. And typically I have, I would guess, 15 to 18 total entries reserved in single entry and three max contest. And I probably use eight to 10 rosters, sometimes even maybe 11 or 12 rosters across 
those 18 or so entries in single entry and three max. So I'm not just using, here's my three rosters for three max and here's my one roster for single entry. I am shopping through and finding what are my favorite rosters. And sometimes it might be six or seven favorite rosters. Sometimes it might be 10, 12, 13, but it's like, what are the rosters that when I look at them, they pop for me. When I look at them, it's like, oh, that's a good roster. And an example I've used today is you hear musicians talk about a song and say, I, that's a song I wish I'd written. Or you hear filmmakers say, that's a movie I wish I'd made. Writers say, that's a book I wish I'd written. Well, sometimes that happens to me with the optimizer. I'll, I'll see a roster out of my 150 and be like, that's a roster I wish I'd built. That's what I was trying to work toward throughout the week. And when I see that, it's like, okay, so let me set that aside. That's going into my single entry and three max play. So I want to, again, it's all about bankroll. If you're playing 20 bucks, the, the, the bank machine and if you don't like the Bink machine, don't use the Bink machine, right? Like use Fantasy Labs, use Lineup HQ on Roto-Grinders, use the Solver, which we're going to have a, a partnership set up with them next week as well. The Solver does a, a great job with their optimizer. So if you want OWS projections and ownership projections in the Solver, you can do that. But find an optimizer. And if you're playing, you know, if you get the Bink machine, it comes out to like eight or nine bucks a week. So you buy the whole season, it comes up to eight or nine bucks a week. Well, if you're playing 10, 15, 20 bucks a week, it's probably not worth it from an ROI perspective to add an extra nine or $10 a week in expenses. But if you're playing 75 bucks, 100 bucks, 150 bucks, 200 bucks, it makes so much sense to have an optimizer because with that, you're, and now we, we don't have a way for our um, projections and whatnot to be in lineup HQ at Roto-Grinders, but they do a great job over there. Like just find one that, that fits for you and, and run these rosters, right? Even if you're just playing one entry, even if you're playing three entries, five entries, or just playing three max and single entry, and you realize, oh, I don't have to just play one to three rosters. I can put in a set of rosters. But again, build your player pool as if you're playing 100 entries, and that way you have these guys who are like, yeah, I only want the one 6% of my rosters. But you know what? I wanted Puka Nakua on, I think it was 4 or 5% of my rosters in week one. And there were multiple rosters of mine that I really liked that Puka Nakua was on. And so those went into three max or limited entry play. I probably wasn't going out of my way hand building to say, okay, I'm going to get Puka Nakua on one of my tighter builds. But that's how you win these smaller field tournaments is really building like an MME player and then finding those sharpest rosters and dropping them into these single entry and three max contests. So again, the Bink machine is 19 bucks. It's 149 for the season. Uh, next week, probably, we'll drop it down 20 additional dollars. So if you wanted to, you could do a week past this week and see if it's a fit for you. And then uh, next week, get the, the full season for 129, which would be basically, you know, same, same as just buying the full season right now. But finding an optimizer and you know, running these rosters and culling down your player pool to, okay, if I were trying to beat 20,000 rosters, 26,000 rosters in the slant, what would I want my player pool to look like? And you kind of add a few extra pieces in there based on that. And then you get these rosters that you can shop through and you can say, okay, this is a roster that I wish I'd built. This is a roster that really stands out to me. So going back to this week, what I had to realize was these, all these running backs at 6K and below who are going to get 16 to 20 touches and aren't going to see a lot of catches and some of them will have a good game and some of them won't. Well, rather than getting in my old mindset of building one roster or three rosters and trying to really identify which are the best ones here, instead saying, you know what? This isn't a week where that's the edge. So what I'm going to do is those guys will all have pretty equal exposure numbers in my pool of 150 rosters. And then I'll get to shop through those 150 rosters and see which ones stand out to me the most. And maybe I'm wrong on the running back who ends up on that roster, but maybe I'm right. You know, my, my roster that would have won 100K in the game changer in week one and, and picked up a second place in the chop block out of 450 rosters, well, it, it had Rashad White on it. And Rashad White had that really disappointing week one game. Like, that can happen. You're not going to get every single spot on your roster right on most of your rosters, but you want to give yourself cracks at getting every single roster right. You know, last week I had, as, as you know, I had like 25, 30% Christian McCaffrey, but then also 
20 to 25% Debo Samuel and like 18 to 20% Ayuk and like 15% George Kittle. And these were all spread out across my rosters. Well, my rosters, all my rosters that finished in the top 25 in the slant all had Debo Samuel, but they had Debo Samuel because I was kind of mixing and matching these 49ers pieces. So again, recognizing this week, okay, this is how running back shapes up. I'm not going to waste time trying to determine which is the best play. I'm going to understand that I can't separate these plays from each other. And therefore, I just need to put them into my pool and pick rosters that look really good. Or if you're hand building, build rosters that look really good and just recognize, hey, among these guys, whichever one fits the best on this particular roster in terms of the story I'm telling, that's the guy who goes on. If there is no story in which one guy stands out over another, if you're not like, hey, I don't have the Chargers pass catchers, so on this one, I'm putting Josh Kelly on. Maybe you do have the Chargers pass catchers. So on this one, it's not Josh Kelly. And maybe on this one, you have Justin Jefferson. So it's not Alexander Madison, but you don't have Tyreek Hill. So Raheem Mostert goes on there. And then maybe you don't have the salary for Raheem Mostert. So then you go to whoever else fits on there, right? And so that's how I'm going to be approaching this week at the running back position. And then at pass catchers, it's it's interesting because I have this really narrow quarterback pool. And then I have this uh, really tight, like, top of ownership running back pool where it's Tony Pollard right now have heavy exposure to Tony Pollard and then kind of like next like maybe half of the ownership that I have on him I'll have on Bijan Robinson and Travis Etienne and then like a little bit down from there Jameer Gibbs and then I start stepping down like to this whole other tier of running backs so it's like really top heavy concentrated ownership and then spread out below that and then pass catchers it's obviously the pass catchers attached to the quarterbacks I like. But beyond that, it just becomes a broad range of pass catchers. And you'll see it in the player grid where it's similar to the running back position in that there's nothing to me, and maybe somebody, maybe you're seeing a different angle, maybe other writers on the site. You know, one of my favorite things on Saturday is reading through the scroll and actually just getting everybody's perspectives in the scroll on that weekend. And in fact, on that note, I'm gonna read... um, I'm going to read something from Jumpahoo, who was one of the very best NBA DFS players for a long time. And when I was at, when I was trying to play NBA DFS, I was studying his rosters because they were so sharp and he was profiting so consistently. And then it was like six months later that he, this was when I was still at Roto-Grinders, he reached out to me in the like DM function on Roto-Grinders to pick my brains about uh, MLB play. And it was like, oh, this dude's like a celebrity to me. I've been, I've been... Uh, studying his NBA lineups. And he and I became pals from there. And he kind of disappeared from the DFS scene for a while and started playing NFL DFS uh, this year and uh, using OWS. And he he hit me up with a DM after week two. He had a really nice week two. And he hit me up to say, uh, my favorite part of your site is the scroll. Uh, I got permission from him to, him to read this out loud, by the way, just in case you're wondering. But he said, my favorite part of your site is the scroll. I uh, said, other sites have everyone regurgitating the same plays, but your site has so many unique individual writers with unique perspectives for a, for a variety of contests for construction. Uh, being different is how you win and hearing 10 entirely different perspectives that are well thought out and articulated gives one all the ammo to make your own decisions with dangerous upside. So that's one of the things that I love about reading the scroll is each of our guys has unique perspectives and isn't afraid to think outside of the box and think independent of the field. So well, there's it's actually surprising how often all of our thoughts overlap on certain places, but everybody's going to have different perspectives. And so every week I come out of reading the scroll with maybe a 5% shift to an 8% shift in the way I'm going to approach that slate that weekend because I pick up this little nugget here, or this little thought here, or this idea here that sparks something over there and it kind of shifts my play and helps to take that next step forward. So again, Somebody else might have a different perspective than me. Somebody else probably will have a different perspective than me and balance what, I, what I'm saying with what everybody else is saying as well on, on the site, on the scroll, and with, with what you're seeing yourself. But what I'm seeing this week is that there isn't a lot that separates all these other pass catchers from one another. So in that regard then, one of the final components, kind of we're talking about how I'm handling this week and, and what I think the edges are on this particular week. So one of the final components here for me is that I am going to lean on ownership 
and correlation and strategy and all that with my pass catchers, especially my like third and fourth pass catcher spots, where it's like I've got high confidence on Mike Williams because I really like the target share that I expect him to see. I have somewhat high confidence on Keenan Allen. I, I won't be playing him nearly as much as I did last week, but I'll obviously still have exposure because he has a more high upside role in this Kellen Moore version of this offense than he's had in past years. I will obviously have high confidence in Justin Jefferson and in the fact that if Jefferson doesn't hit, one of these other Vikings pieces is probably going to be hitting instead. So there are pieces that I have confidence on, and then there are all these pieces that are just kind of bunched up to me and I can't necessarily separate one from the other. And so on those pieces, I'm going to be leveraging ownership projections, strategy, correlation, uh, what what playing this particular player means for what I'm betting on on this roster compared to what I'm betting on elsewhere on my roster, what creates a unique roster compared to what other people are going to have. And those are the types of things I'm going to be looking at more than what I expect to happen in a game. In other words, okay, here's the pool of guys who can have a good game. And, and I'm rather than trying to now separate this guy from that guy and make decisions based on that, from that point forward, I'm going to say, it's out of my hands. Like, I can't get any closer than this to determining which of these guys are going to hit. So instead, I'm going to build sharp rosters around these guys. Or, or in my case, I'm going to build a sharp pool of rosters and then identify the ones that I feel are sharpest among those rosters and put those onto my tighter build, into my tighter contests. So again, a unique week, a week in which our, our edge is very different. Our edge is an OWS DAO. Uh, our edge is very different than it was last week. And it was really cool for me kind of this week where it, it is, you know, weeks two and three are the, the tightest weeks for me, just because there's still so much spillover from the, the August business stuff this early in the season, but then it's also, it's not week one where you've got a couple weeks to prepare. It's it's the crunch of a regular NFL week uh, with that on top of it. And then this was just a really tough week for me to get a handle on as well. And so last week I, I kind of thought, man, I'm managing my time so well because Friday night I was like, oh my gosh, it's only Friday. I thought it was Saturday night because I felt so on top of last week's slate and so far ahead that that was the way I felt on Friday night. Whereas this week on Thursday, it was like, oh my God, it's already Thursday night. Like, how am I going to wrap my head around this slate? So it was cool to take that, you know, instead of pounding my head against the wall to take that little break last night, Thursday night, and then really come back from that break refreshed and start seeing like, okay, here's why this slate hasn't been making sense to me and recognizing the edge this week is just different. So rather than me trying to sort through these this third tier of running backs that are all viable or, you know, all these secondary pass catcher options for me this week that are all viable rather than trying to sort through those recognize like okay at this point I'm not going to be able to necessarily separate one from another and determine the best play from the bunch so it just becomes what are the best rosters that I can build and that's going to be my edge this week and for many of you is going to be your edge this week now we are going to get to the bottom of build typically in this podcast I give you kind of a rundown somewhat early of what this podcast looks like. As you now see, we kind of take an overview look at the slate and then drill down. You know, we do take an overview look at the slate in the angles email, which can also be found at the top of the scroll. And then we drill down from there into how are we taking that overview and really starting to apply it to our rosters. Uh, and then we close out with the bottom up build where we build with a salary cap of 44K. It allows us to see some of the available value on a slate, but also allows us to talk as if everybody were building with a 44K salary cap and kind of talk through DFS strategy and theory so we can see how we put together a roster to give ourselves a shot at a first place finish. Uh, and then we actually do have a contest in which everyone has only a 44K salary cap. And that's the bottom-up build contest, which is always linked in the player grade. You can also find the link to it in the OWS Discord server. Uh, but the bottom-up build, 44K salary cap, you gotta build 44K or below. First place gets 150 edge points, which is equivalent to $150 on OWS that you can use in the DFS education marketplace. So pick up $150 worth of courses. You also get a special Discord blue color in Discord so everybody knows you are a bottom-up build winner. So uh, now that we've given you the overview of what the Angles podcast looks like, 
We're at the end of the Angles podcast. Let's take a look at this week's bottom-up build. And this allows me to talk about one last critical element that I'm seeing on this slate. And it's kind of the one thing we haven't talked about yet from this like top-down view of how I'm going to be attacking this slate. And that is, you know, I've already said that Kirk Cousins, Justin Herbert, like to me, I I was shocked when I looked at ownership projections and saw Kirk Cousins projected as high as he is. I think he has like a 26-pointer and a 32-pointer so far this year. But we look at last year's game logs, and obviously they've added Jordan Addison, but we look at last year's game logs and he had like one game above 26 points, or maybe it was no games above 26, 27 points. Like this is a pure pocket passer who needs a tremendous statistical output in order to pay off a 6,800 salary. So I think there's some recency bias coming into that. Obviously, top game on the slate here with Kirk Cousins. I'm going to have plenty of Kirk Cousins. He'll probably be my third highest owned quarterback. But I also want to be recognizing the limitations on Kirk Cousins. He's probably, if we played out this slate 100 times, most of the time he's getting you kind of like 23 to 25, maybe 26 points. And so if we can find the cheap guy who goes for 22, 23 points, or if we can find the quarterback who goes for 33, 35, 38 points, well, now we're really separating from the field. So on a week like this, we want to be looking for separators and the potential separator at quarterback is Patrick Mahomes. We have seen, we know that Kansas City is going to throw the ball no matter what the score is. Now, again, if they get the ball back with seven minutes left and they're up 35 to 10, well, they're probably not just relentlessly throwing the ball at that point. They're not the 07 Patriots, which is really the the only team that has done that on their FU tour of the NFL, uh, throwing the ball, regardless of the score, regardless of the amount of time left in the game. But the thing about this Kansas City setup is, you know, Zanamir often, often says, if a team is winning by so much that they're resting their players, they still got those points, even if they got them in three quarters, right? We saw that with Philadelphia last year. We're sure, like, the fourth quarter comes around and you're like, oh, man, all these guys are on the bench. This sucks. But also, they've already gotten you the score that you needed in order to be on your path to a first-place finish, right? They did their part already. Now, where that separates is if it's, like, these 27-point games, right? If Buffalo has a competitive game against Washington, which is the likeliest setup here. And they're, again, winning, say, 27 to 17 or 27 to 20. Well, that's very different from a team taking on an opponent that they can just absolutely annihilate and put up four or five touchdowns before they're at that point where they're resting players. So all these other games that, again, I've even made the mistake in this podcast of using the word blowout, all these other games where we have heavy favorites, they're still not heavy favorites where it's like, oh, they're just going to annihilate them. It's like these are still going to be somewhat competitive games or in some instances, very competitive games where toward the end, this team, you know, they've got the lead, but it's not like they're just running away and scoring on every possession and putting up one of these monster games without a back and forth being required. Kansas City, there was a game, I think it was two years ago, against the Jets, where Kansas City was something like 17-point home favorites, and Patrick Mahomes was around 2% owned, and he had this monster game and was the quarterback that you had to have that week, but everybody just looked at that potential blowout, that probable blowout, and they are like, well, I'm clearly staying off of this spot. But understand the way that this Kansas City offense functions Patrick Mahomes in a probable blowout could end up being the separator quarterback on the slate. So this bottom-up build is actually not the sharpest bottom-up build I could build this week because the salary constraints of putting Patrick Mahomes onto a 44K roster and pairing him with the best pairing partner in Travis Kelsey uh, really restricted what I could do elsewhere on this roster. Uh, As we know from having the bottom up build contest for multiple years, you do want to try to get up to one of these higher priced guys because 30 point scores are always valuable. 30 point scores are always going to put you on your path toward a first place finish. Uh, We always see bottom up build winners finding ways to fit in, whether it's Tony Pollard or Justin Jefferson would be tough this week, although I'm sure some of you will figure out a way to do it. Um, But again, you kind of really restrict your flexibility if you pay up at multiple spots on the bottom-up build. 
But I wanted to do this because it gives an opportunity to highlight Patrick Mahomes separate from that core game environment and say, you know, really, if there's a spot that's going to separate from that, from those quarterbacks, this is the guy who's likeliest to do it. Obviously, there are some other places we could go. Desmond Ritter, guy who can run the ball. Deshaun Watson, we already talked about him. C.J. Stroud, if the uh, Texans fall behind and have to keep passing once again, he could see another 35, 40 pass attempts in that game. But in terms of just raw points, not, not point per dollar multipliers and all that, but just in terms of who could really separate in raw points, uh, Patrick Mahomes is your best bet of the bunch. If I am playing Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey is clearly the uh, preferred stacking partner. So that's what I'm going to do on this roster. And then in order to save salary, I also went with Jarek McKinnon on this roster. Now, the other running back I went with was Craig Reynolds. And uh, at this point on Friday, David Montgomery is now doubtful. So it looks like Craig Reynolds will be in that David Montgomery, Jamal Williams role. And it's easy to lean toward the obvious assumption, which is that the Lions are just going to give Jameer Gibbs more snaps. The Lions are going to maybe have Jameer Gibbs on the field 60% of the plays. And what, what I've said so far is Craig Reynolds probably steps into this David Montgomery role but probably doesn't get the full allotment of David Montgomery touches. Probably gets 10 to 12 touches, and Jameer Gibbs soaks up some more touches. But what if? What if that's not the case? What if Craig Reynolds, a guy who had multiple games last year on, on you know, sort of fill-in volume with three targets as well, what if Craig Reynolds actually takes on the full David Montgomery role? It wouldn't be the first time that the Lions underutilized to our to our thoughts, underutilized their explosive pass catching back. How many times last year was it like, okay, finally DeAndre Swift's gonna start getting more work. Finally DeAndre Swift's gonna start getting more work. And there's potential that we're gonna keep saying, well, they used a first round pick on Jameer Gibbs. Finally, they're gonna give him 60, 65% of the snaps. Now, again, my thought coming into today, my thought coming into working on the bottom up build was. Jameer Gibbs is the guy for the Lions who's going to get the touches. And I'll certainly have, a, you know, I've already mentioned that there's, to me, it goes uh, Tony Pollard, then Bijan Robinson, then Travis Etienne, then Jameer Gibbs, and then kind of this bunched up clump of these other running backs. But what if Craig Reynolds actually gets 15 carries and two or three receptions? What if Craig Reynolds gets those two goal line carries that sometimes go to David Montgomery or last year sometimes went to Jamal Williams. So at 4,400 and a guy that most people won't even look to, Craig Reynolds is very interesting. He goes on this bottom-up build. Again, at this point on this bottom-up build, we're looking to free up salary because not only did I want Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, but I also wanted to make sure I got a piece from the passing attack of the Chargers and a piece from the passing attack of the Vikings. So on the Chargers, I go back to what I've said a, a few times this year, telling the story of, of that press conference from Bucks offensive coordinator Dave Canales before the season got underway. And one of the media members for the Buccaneers was asking Dave Canales about the growth of Kate Otten and what he's doing well. And Canales got real positive and was praising Kate Otten and his growth and development and his versatility. And then he interrupted himself to say, look, you don't design plays for Kate Otten. <laughs> you design plays for Mike Evans. You design plays for Chris Godwin and basically saying the quarterback goes through his progressions and it's going to be Evans first, Godwin second, or Godwin first, Evans second. And then if both those guys are covered, the targets kind of spill over to everybody else on the team from there. Well, taking that over to the Chargers, it's easy to say, man, this game could go nuts and maybe Quentin Johnston has a big game or maybe Josh Palmer has a big game and maybe they do, right? But who are they designing plays for? They're designing plays for Keenan Allen and for Mike Williams. And with Austin Eckler appearing likely to miss this game, that just elevates the number of plays that are going to be designed to go to these two guys. So I don't want to be in the trap of saying, I got to get exposure to this game. So who's going to be on the field? And yes, in large field play, will I have a little bit of Josh Palmer and a little bit of Quinton Johnston? Probably. But are they going to be on one of my rosters that stands out to me for tighter builds? No, they won't. So on this for, you know, bottom up build contest is 200 entries. So thinking in that mindset, I uh, want to get to Mike Williams on this roster. Got to move around some, some salary to make it happen, right? So Mike Williams and KJ Osborne on this roster, uh, again, don't have Justin Jefferson. So 
because Justin Jefferson's not on this roster, we're effectively placing a bet on this particular roster that Justin Jefferson disappoints or at least doesn't have a monster game. But then we also expect this game environment as a whole to still go well. So we want the spillover from Justin Jefferson. Hope that him not getting points means that KJ Osborne is hitting for a big play or scoring a touchdown or even slim scenario, but could happen that Justin Jefferson is really the Chargers are figuring, figuring out a way to isolate him so much that more targets are going to other guys, in which case, Osborne can end up with, you know, five catches for 80 yards and a touchdown and have a really nice game at 4K in salary. Uh, Wrap up this roster with Tank Dell. No need to go in there. We already know how much we like Tank Dell, how much we like his role. Should see seven or more targets. Once again, it's very difficult to find these 6K guys, I mean, these these, uh, sub 4K guys who not only can get seven to 10 targets, but can also see them in the intermediate areas of the field. So typically, the way pricing breaks down on DraftKings, the sub 4K guys are either the the three to four target guys with downfield roles who can post an absolute dud or can post a big game because they catch Marvin Mims two catches for 100 and something yards and a touchdown. Or It's the guys who have short area roles. In fact, the other guy we're about to touch on here, the guys who have short area roles and can get five to seven targets pretty bankably, but their shot at upside, their shot at topping 50 yards are pretty low, right? They need a lot to break their way in order to go for a ceiling game. So it's very rare that we can get a Tank Dell type player who can get seven to 10 targets that's already above the number of targets we can typically get down here and who has an intermediate role. I said it last week that he should be priced at about 5K. I'll say it again that he should be priced at about 5K. So while this is a much tougher matchup against a zone-heavy Jags team that has a lot of speed, that concerns me a little bit. I like CJ Stroud. You'll see in the player grid, he's one of the uh, quarterbacks on my potentially in in play for my tighter player pool but um you know it still concerns me because to a young quarterback those holes in the zone will look like they're open and they're going to close a lot quicker than they're used to those holes closing uh so not not a slam dunk tank dell week like last week was but still an underpriced player uh which is a good type of player to get onto one of these bottom-up builds and the other player here is josh downs and uh you know go back through the two games Gardner Minshew started last year for Philly. Devontae Smith had over 100 yards in both games. A.J. Brown had over 100 yards in one and 97 yards in the other. One of those games was against the Dallas Cowboys defense. Now, obviously, that was with the Philadelphia Eagles, with the Philadelphia Eagles offense. But point being, Gardner Minshew can sling it. And we should know that by now. He's also aggressive and he gets the ball out quick. He's playing against this Ravens team that is pretty much impossible to run on and it has a good pass rush. So getting the ball out quick will likely be an emphasis here. Obviously, Josh Downs, five targets and seven targets in these first couple games of the year, but right around 30 receiving yards in both games. He's had one or two downfield targets, but primarily he's working close to the line of scrimmage. Now, he's young enough that it won't surprise me if his role is a little bit different this week. It won't surprise me if he ends up catching five passes for 65 yards instead of five passes for 42 yards, right? Uh, But Josh Downs is kind of a a little more like the typical sub 4K guy than Tank Dell is, but fits well onto a bottom-up build. He's going to be in my player pool this week. And then we wrap it all up with the commander's defense, a defense that is solid, that's priced at only 2,400. They don't have as much upside as a team like the Jets at 2,800, taking on the Patriots at home. But Very easy for Washington to put up six, seven, eight points against Josh Allen and the Bills, even if the Bills score 27 points in this spot. Uh, And then obviously outlier things can happen where they score a defensive touchdown or something crazy happens and they end up putting up, you know, 12 to 13 to 14 points. So at 2,400, they're an interesting defense on this build. And then last thing I want to note here, so that's the bottom up build. Uh, Mahomes, McKinnon, Craig Reynolds, Travis Kelsey at tight end. Tank Dale, Josh Downs, KJ Osborne, Mike Williams at wide receiver and commander's defense. Uh, I also want to mention that ownership is showing a lot of people this week right now kind of gravitating toward the safe plays without a ton of upside. So I, I really stood out to me that Michael Pittman is currently being projected as one of the higher owned wide receivers. Uh, Calvin Ridley, another one who you guys know how much I love Calvin Ridley, but if we're expecting the Jags to control that game, you've got Trevor Lawrence, a quarterback who excellent quarterback, but 36 career regular season games, 
only six games over 300 yards, only five games more than two touchdowns. And, you know, he's going to throw a lot more short area throws, short and intermediate and less downfield than people think. And in a game that the Jags should control, you know, those 300-yard games for Trevor Lawrence, they come in games where they're being pushed on the scoreboard. So if the Jags are controlling this game, it's going to be harder for Calvin Ridley to go for 35 points, right? He's probably ending up in this, maybe he scores 20, maybe he scores 22, maybe he scores 23, 24. That's great, right? But it's not winning you a tournament. Uh, Michael Pittman, he's going to see a lot of targets from Gardner Minshew, but he doesn't get a ton of downfield work. The Ravens don't allow a ton of passing yards. So he's likelier, I'm going to have probably a little more Michael Pittman than I'm realizing, but he's likelier to have one of these eight for 80 games than he is to go over 100 yards and score a touchdown and be one of these had-to-have-it types of pieces. So because of that, I want to be embracing a little bit more volatility this week than the field is willing to embrace. And I already said, you know, wide receiver is going to be more about game theory and strategy and whatnot for me this week. Well, part of that is going to be leaning more on Saturday night ownership projections this week than I typically do. You guys know it's not unusual for me to go an entire week without looking at ownership projections once or, you know, without looking at ownership projections until after my rosters are finished because the way I play, that's not as central to my process as it is for a lot of other DFS players. But this is the type of week where I'm going to be hunting through who are the 1% owned guys, who are the 2% owned guys who are capable of having a big game. So Donovan Peoples-Jones, Gabe Davis, these guys who, yeah, they could get you only one or two points or four or five points, but also they could go for 25 to 30 and nobody's going to be on them. So if everybody else is going to be on kind of the the 3x multiplier type guys, I want to be on the guys who could be a 0.5x multiplier of their salary, but also could be a 6 or 7x multiplier of their salary on the, if the week shakes out the right way. So uh, kind of give myself a chance to be all the way to the left or all the way to the right in the standings, finishing in last place or in first place with some of these um, more volatile pass catchers. And that's going to be part of my strategy this week is small quarterback pool, uh, kind of uh, bank on the small number of places where I have a high level of certainty at running back and at wide receiver. Uh, And that kind of covers like my RB1 spot and my wide receiver one and two spots, right? And then in my RB2 spot, it's going to be more about, hey, mixing and matching various pieces. In my wide receiver three and four spots, it's going to be more about, hey, how do I embrace some volatility to potentially grab some upside that other people are not accessing? And I believe that, again, my path to first place this week is more muddy than my path to first place was last week. This is not a week that lines up as like, man, if we played out this slate 100 times, I would make so much money on it. But I, my goal is every single week that I play, I want to find, if I played out this slate 100 times, am I finding the path that would make me profitable over that 100 slate sample size? So for me, this is the path that I am identifying and is the path that I'm going to be, be taking. I feel confident that if we played this slate out 100 times and I took this approach all 100 times, I would come out profitable over that stretch. So with that, I will close out the Angles podcast. I will thank you for hanging out as always. And I will see you on OWS throughout the weekends. I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. <laughs>